what I'm presenting today is from my current book project. Black politics and um, it's called <coughs> Race and Capitalism, Black Politics in the Era of Finance Cap Capitalism is very much a work in progress. It comes out of the work I've been doing with the National Race and Capitalism Project, which I co-founded with Megan Ming Francis of the University of Washington several years ago. The project works with scholars based in Mexico, Canada, and th throughout, throughout Western Europe and the US. We're in the process of expanding our international networks. Within the US, several universities played a central role in building scholarly work as well as more public facing work. And some of these schools include UCLA, the University of Washington, and the University of Chicago. Individual scholars from dozens of universities have affiliated with the project. We have sponsored pre and postdoctoral fellowships, several conferences, writing workshops, a podcast, and we're in the process of pulling together special issues of academic journals as well as an edited volume for an academic press. So we are often asked, why is it named the National Race and Capitalism Project? This is a question we receive from young activists as well as from colleagues in the academy, from scholars, particularly those of us who were trained and grounded in black studies. The question really is, why not racial capitalism? I begin to address that question today. Some activists have asked that question, but others have asked additional questions such as why not Afro-pessimism? That is also a question I addressed in the, in the book manuscripts. Further, we have also been told that some find the terms racial capitalism or race and capitalism and their variants exclusionary. <clears throat> Just as they also find, these same people also find label, labels such as patriarchal heteronormative capitalism also exclusionary. This critical question is also addressed in the manuscript. I don't address it directly in my comments today, but would be very open to talking about it during Q&A. I begin by discussing three frameworks designed to describe and analyze the intersection of race and capitalism. They are Cedric Robinson's original formulation, racial capitalism, the framework of racial capitalism adopted by me and some of my colleagues at the National Race and Capitalism Project, and a third category that Satnam Verdi of the University of Glasgow has labeled racialized capitalism. All three frameworks specify the relationship between white race, usually signifying a structural phenomena such as systemic racism, institutional racism, and or white supremacy, and capitalism or the capitalist social order. There is substantial divergence on how capital capitalism, the capitalist social order is conceived, whether structural racism, I prefer the term white supremacy, and or patriarchy are eternal to, if constitutive of a capitalist social order, or if patriarchy, white supremacy, and are eternal to, if constitutive of a capitalist social order. Do they represent three separate systems of domination that are tightly articulated with each other. That is perhaps the most significant difference between the race and capitalism frame and that of racialized capitalism or racial capitalism. What is at stake? What are the critical differences? Where do the family resemblances end? These are the questions that will be addressed in this talk. Okay, that's unfortunate. 
So what I'm first going to do is take you through the three frameworks I just described, racial capitalism, racialized capitalism, and race and capitalism. If there's time, I'm going to talk a little bit about what's been left out of the talk, but it's, that is in the chapter. And then I'll offer some concluding thoughts. Cedric Robinson defined racial cap capitalism as follows in his magis magisterial work, Black Marxism, quote, the development, organization, and expansion of capitalist society pursued essentially racial directions. So too did social ideology. As a material force then, it could be expected that racialism would inevitably permeate the social structures emerging from capitalism. I have used the term racial capitalism to refer to this development and to the subsequent structures as a historical agency, unquote. Jolie Melamed argues for the critical significance of Robinson's concept when she argues, quote, thus the term racial capitalism requires its users to recognize that capitalism is racial capitalism. Capital can only be capital when it is accumulating, it can only accumulate by producing and moving through relations of severe inequality among human groups. Procedures of racialization and capitalism are ultimately never separable from each other, unquote. Melamed is correct to argue that the imperative to accumulate have historically been fundamentally intertwined with processes of regionalization. Yet, as we shall see, a regimes of articulation approach to which, for which I advocate argues that while deeply imbricated white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism are three semi-autonomous systems of domination with each having its own logic. There are important distinctions, though, between Robinson's original formulation and many such as Melamed and her colleagues who use the concept today. One of Robinson's more controversial and historically problematic claims is that processes of racialization and racial subordination were already well established in Europe at the time of the emergence of capitalism. Capitalism was checked by these pre-existing racial structures according to Robinson. Since some tend to agree with Robinson today, others such as Melamed and her colleagues correctly in my opinion, emphasize the emergence of a new global system of racial capitalism and colonialism and empire that required the simultaneous dispossession of and at times genocide of indigenous populations, as well as the enslavement and trade of Africans. The Count of Melamed and her colleagues also tend to focus on the phenomenon of settler colonialism and its ongoing oppression of indigenous and other colonized populations, according to them. Many contemporary scholars see ongoing accumulations through the expropriation of the persons and lands of racially supported population as an intrinsic characteristic of modern capital accumulation as well. This narrative is an implicit and often explicit rejection of a reading of the last section of Capital, Volume 1, where Marx is often read as consigning colonialism and slavery to the prehistory of capitalism. This line of argument is one that is shared by many who, ad who adopt either a racing capitalist or racial capitalism framework. A key difference between the racial capitalism and racing capitalism approaches is how the question of whether a capitalist social order is shaped internally or is comprised of multiple systems of domination. There are other differences between a racing capitalism approach and a racial capitalism approach that is outlined by Melamis 2015 article and recently developed in the 2018 volume of Social Text edited by Jody Bird, Alyosha Goldstein, Jody Melamed, and Shandon Reddy. One difference is that the social text editors 
argued in their introductory essay that, quote, colonialism and racial capital have been historically co-constitutive, unquote. That colonialism and racial capitalism are different processes is further highlighted when they state, quote, financialization, debt, and accelerated concentration of wealth today works through social relations already configured and disposed by imperial conquest and racial capitalism, unquote. The race and capitalism approach, on the other hand, views colonialism and imperialism as well as enslavement and trade with Africa as part of the same process, not as different co-constitutive processes. While Byrd, Melamed, and their colleagues see colonialism leading to genocide and dispossession of indigenous populations, and racial capitalism producing racially, a racially subordinate population of, of people of Africa descent through slavery, the slave trade, and its afterlives. The approach I advocate sees indigenous dispossession and enslavement of Africans as part of the same colonial imperial project that produced global white supremacy and predatory capitalism. Both processes are truly racialized, I argue, albeit the nature of racialization has wide variation across and within regions. One area of agreement is that the global process of accumulation, <coughs> both original and ongoing accumulation, is rooted in what Byrd and her colleagues call racial cruelty. The need for capitalist accumulation to be rooted in excessive violence against racially subordinate populations. This is a common thing, not only a work that directly addresses the racial dynamics of capitalism, but also among those are, that are more attuned to an Afro-pessimist analysis of black subordination. Indeed, the focus on excessive anti-black violence is a hallmark and decontribution of those associated with Afro-pessimism, although I have deep criticism of that genre. Finally, a difference with the social text editor's approach and that of the race and capitalism approach is that the latter approach centers anti-blackness as a structural feature both of emerging white supremacy and capital accumulation. As we shall see, this is a historically based claim to the origins in the launching of, this, of large scale trading in Africans by, by the Portuguese in the mid 15th century. Another recent intervention has been pursued by Dustin Jenkins and Justin Leroy in the recent volume, Histories of Racial Capitalism. Their intervention, like that of Melamin and her colleagues, builds on Robinson's insights and assists that processes of racial subordination are an intrinsic aspect of capitalist social orders, an aspect absolutely necessary for original and ongoing accumulation. They also, like Robinson and others, critique Marx's view that capitalism is a homogenizing process. Instead, they agree with Robinson, an intrinsic feature of capitalist society that it differentiates between and assigns value to different populations. They make several claims about the nature of racial capitalism, and therefore about the fundamental nature of capitalism. It's, their very first claim is one similar to the one Melamin made years earlier, racial capitalism is capitalism. And I quote, racial capitalism is not one of capitalism's varieties. It does not stand alongside merchant, industrial, and financial, <coughs> excuse me, as a permutation phase or stage in history of capitalism writ large. Rather from the beginnings, of the Atlantic slave trade and the colonization of, of America's onward, all capitalism in material profitability and illogical coherence is constitutive of racial capitalism. In other words, we reverse the basic assumption that racial subjugation is a particular manifestation of a more universal capitalist system. They build on this claim by then defining racial capitalism, I'll quote it less. Racial capitalism is the process by which the key dynamics of capitalism 
accumulation dispossession, credit debt, production surplus, capitalist worker, developed, underdeveloped, contract coercion, and others become articulated through race. In other words, capital has not historically accumulated without previously existing relations of racial inequality. This process functions in two ways. First, the violent dispossession inherent to capital accumulation operate by leveraging, intensifying, and cradle racial distinctions. Second, race serves as a tool for naturalizing the inequalities produced by capitalism and this racialized process of naturalization serves to rationalize an unequal distribution of resources, social power, rights, and privileges. This formulation is new and specific and largely strongly grounded in the historical record. Yet the theoretical framework proposed on the rubric race and capitalism differs in a critical respect. A multiple systems of domination approach does not view race as only a tool for naturalizing the inequalities produced by, by capitalism. Instead, it views the processes of racialization as a result of the global system of racial subordination that emerges nearly simultaneously with the capitalist social order and the global division of the world into Africans and non-Africans in 1444 were the necessary precondition for the emergence of an Atlantic-centered global capitalism that would soon dominate the Mediterranean and other sites of emerging capitalist social orders. If we, as you see in the next section, expropriation does too much work in Nancy Fraser's approaches, <coughs> in Nancy Fraser's theorizing, excuse me, race is under theorizing this version of racial capitalism. That said, racial capitalism approaches to the study of the nexus of capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy are arguably the most historically grounded of any of the frameworks and excel as showing the mechanisms through which hierarchies of race, gender, and class in their messy articulation continue to be produced and reproduced. Racialized capitalism, a term Sachs and Verdi uses, approaches like approaches racial capitalism frameworks and see processes of racialization and for some patriarch as fundamentally shaping a capitalist social order. Unlike many from the racial capitalism school, they do not emphasize settler colonialism, dispossession, and the revolutionary potential of the currently informally colonized, enslaved, and dispossessed. Instead, they emphasize the negative consequences of ignoring racial subordination and oppression for being able to challenge the global capitalist social order. Satnam Verdi works provide one example of this approach to the study of the intersectional white supremacy in the, in the capitalist social order. Like Nancy Fraser's who work I soon discussed, he posits a single capitalist social order that has been profoundly shaped by the logics of racial domination. He sees the emergence of racism as a consequence of state action to break multi-ethnic proletarian unity, first in the colonies and then in the metropole. He also provides an important account of the racialization of the Irish, Jews, Asians, and Caribbean workers in Britain. He also describes the role that some socialist and other working class organizations in the UK had in promoting, reproducing, and forcing racial hierarchies among workers at the same time they were fighting for partial racialized democratization. He explicitly uses an historical materialist approach while also sees himself as being in conversation with both black Marxism and Marxist feminism. One task he sets himself is to decenter Eurocentric analysis of capitalism, working class formations, and struggles. For Verdi, racism is a tool of, quote, state elites. 
to contain the class struggles waged by subaltern populations with a view to making the system safer for capital accumulation, unquote. Thus, racism is a structuring force that shapes how, quote, the proletariat is incorporated into capitalist systems of domination, unquote. Racism is a constitutive feature of the modern world. A consequence of his analysis is his claim that race-blind efforts are both unjust and doomed to fail. Though Verdi argues that we need to think racism, and this is a quote, in articulation to class, gender, nation, and the state, unquote, this, this theorization of articulation is very different from the regime's articulation approach described later. The latter is centered on the analysis of what is seen as, as multiple systems of domination, while the articulation Verdi describes is between phenomena of multiple types and is envisioning and, and as occurring within a capitalist social order. For Verdi, the state is a key actor in shaping how racial subordination shapes the capitalist social order and the racialization of labor. In turn, capitalism plays a key role in racism, genesis, and reproduction, unquote. Verdi's analysis of the central role of states in shaping the articulation of racism and capitalism leads him to argue that we should be analyzing multiple racisms. Specifically, he argues, a further virtue of situating an account of racism within the unfolding story of historical capitalism as against the post-colonial tendency to ground it within the civilizational encounter between the West and the rest is that it helps to make transparent the plurality of racisms, including the racialization and later deracialization of part of the European descendant proletariat. Unlike settler societies like the US where the descendants of, the, of this English poor were incorporated into the ideal of the white race in relational opposition to the enslaved African proletarians marked as black, in 19th century Britain, the multi-ethnic proletariat was principally differentiated and hierarchically reordered through an articulation between an imperial British nationalism and the racialized signifiers of Anglo-Saxon and Irish Celt. There's much to consider in the preceding passage. Verdi is correct to remind us that locally processes of racialization can take quite different forms and the categories themselves can change over time. The key racial divisions of the 19th century Britain are not the same as those found in the 21st century. Yet I take issue with the characterization of enslaved Africans within the US as proletarians. The system of racial domination embedded within US slavery drew sharp distinction between a white proletariat and the enslaved population with respect to citizen, citizenship, excuse me, the right to family formation and maintenance, the right not to be raped, the ability to sell one's labor in, in a market. Fundamentally, as the Afro-pessimists and others remind us, is that one's status as an enslaved subject due to extreme gratuitous violence at any time by a white person. That status is very different from that of an antebellum white worker, no matter how precarious the position of the latter may have been. A system of dominations approach helps guard against categorizations that flatten profound differences in oppression even within the capitalist social order. Nancy Fraser is perhaps the most well-known theorist who uses a racialized capitalism framework. Starting point for Fraser and her colleagues is that capitalism is a quote social system of class domination, unquote, as I and others have argued that white supremacy is a social system of racial domination. With respect to the relationship between what she terms racial oppression to the capitalist social order, like really she argues, quote, I take imperialism and racial oppression to be integral to capitalist society, as integral as gender domination. Just as we found a structural basis of gender hierarchy in capitalism's constitutive institutional separation of production from reproduction, 
So we should also look for built-in constitutive institutional basis for racial and imperial impression, unquote. For Frazier, there are two key processes that are essential, I'm quoting, for theorizing the racial dynamics of capitalist society. One is the crucial role capital played in capital accumulation by unfree, dependent, and unwaged labor, by which I mean that labor is expropriated as oppressed <coughs> to exploit, subject to domination unmediated by wage contract, unquote. Frazier continues by stating that, quote, expropriation is accumulation by other means. The commander capacities get incorporated into the value expanding process that defines capital. Simple theft is not enough, unquote. For Frazier, the second essential process concerns, quote, the role of political orders in conferring the status of free individuals on workers while con constituting others as lesser beings, for example, as chattel slave, indentured servants, colonized subjects, native members of domestic dependent nations, dead peons, felons, and cover being such as wives and children who lack legal personality, unquote. In an earlier article, Frazier laid the foundation for her theorization of the relationship between racial oppression and capitalist oppression. She stated, my thesis is that the racializing dynamics of capitalist society are crystallized in the mark that distinguishes free subjects of exploitation <clears throat> from dependent subjects of expropriation. Like several others, Frazier sees the racialization of various populations as essential for expanding and continuing capital accumulation. Groups such as Africans in the era of the slave trade, as well as indigenous populations of Western Hemisphere, elsewhere were, quote, available in principle for racialization. Status hierarchy, too, is an essential accumulation marking off groups subject to brute exp expropriation from those, from those destined for mere exp exploitation, unquote. I agree with most of the above, but like Verdi, the singular focus on capitalist social order. Within, within which racially subordinated populations are marked for expropriation does not explain the full range of what it means to be a member of a racially subordinated group under white supremacy or a woman within a patriarchal society. One of the many strengths of Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch is his detailed attention to the myriad of consequences that the transition from Judaism capitalism had for, had for women, not just, just as Federici showed that economic exploitation was a key aspect of the transition. It was not the only critical aspect of what the trans transition meant for men and women. The ferocious heightening of violence against women was a fundamental aspect of the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Just as the many scholars of black indigenous studies emphasize the central structure role that violence against those of Afri the African descent and indigenous population had in shaping what I'm calling white supremacy. So Diaz Hartman work represents a particularly brilliant theorization of the scope of racial oppression and how each of the systems of domination structures each other, while also keeping in firm focus the implications for the everyday lives, for example, of working class black women in the early 20th century. Frazier makes an important contribution in her theoretical discussion of the role that expropriation plays in highly racialized capitalist social order. But expropriation is doing too much work. A systems of domination approach encourages us to analyze the logics of each system of domination as well as the dynamics that flow from their mutual articulation. What is the difference between the racial capitalism and the racialized capitalism approaches? Both approaches view processes of racialization as internal to and constitutive of capitalist, capitalism and capitalist social orders. Part of the difference is one of lineage. 
those who see the you use the phrase racial capitalism, neither Verdi nor Fraser does, see themselves as part of the tradition started by Cedric Robinson and see themselves as extending and I would argue deepening his work. While Verdi respectively cites Robinson, both Fraser and Verdi consciously are mainly responding to those within various post-colonial and Marxist traditions that incorrectly downplay the importance of processes of racial subordination or to capitalism and specifically processes of capital accumulation. Byrd, Melamed, and their colleagues, on the other hand, are focused on a very different set of concerns. They seek to theoretically and politically show the mutual commonalities between settler colonialism and racial regimes. Jenkins and Leroy are focused on the historical, historical process through which race from the beginning has shaped capitalism and the impossibility of studying capitalism in any of its aspects without also considering the constitutive role of processes of racialization. The race and capitalism framework is focused on a different set of concerns while supportive of the central analytical and political foci <coughs> of the racial capitalism and racial, racialized capitalism's theoretical frames. Each of these approaches is designed to make a specific intervention, whether it's, Mar it's on Marxist based on nature of capitalism, such as with Frazier, post-colonial theorizing about race and caste, such as with Verdi, or contemporary debates about the history of capitalism, particularly Destin Jenkins. On the rubric of race and capitalism, I argue that the logics of racial domination and capitalism are inextricably articulated with each other and both must be simultaneously confronted and analyzed. The processes associated with the slave trade, slavery, and colonialism do not just constitute capitalism prehistory, but come through the integrated within each era's capitalist social order. Concurrently, processes of racialization emerge, categorizing peoples of four continents, as Lisa Lowe so powerfully argues. A global regime of articulation of all three systems of domination is the result of an ongoing accumulation that has regional specificity and widespread commonalities, and both must be understood. Scholars such as Catherine McClintock have observed that, quote, no social category exists in privileged isolation. Each comes into being in social relation to the other categories, if in uneven and contradictory ways. But power is seldom adjudicated evenly. Different social situations are overdetermined for race, for gender, for class, or for each in turn, unquote. She continues that since these categories, quote, come into existence in and through relations to each other, if in contradictory and conflictual ways, they can be called articulated categories, unquote. Well, this is a critical observation. I hear the language of articulated system of domination. This difference allows us to think through the contradictions that aid and hinder political mobilization as a result of partially conflicting sets of privileges and oppressions in terms of help explain historically contingent pageants, patterns of conflict and cooperation. What is meant by articulation of multiple systems of domination? I follow Stuart Hall when he defines articulation as by the, by, quote, by the term articulation, I mean a connection or link, which is not necessarily given in all cases as a law or as a fact of life, but which requires particular conditions of existence to appear at all, which has to be positively sustained <coughs> by specific processes, which is not eternal, but has to be constantly be renewed, which can under some circumstances disappear or be overthrown, leading to the old linkages being dissolved and new connections, rearticulations being forged. 
It's often important that an articulation between different practices does not mean that they become identical or that one is resolved into the other. Each retains its distinct determinations and conditions of existence. However, once an articulation is made, the two practices can function together, not as an immediate identity, but as a distinction within a unity. In our 2019 journal Political Philosophy article, Articulated Darkness, Emily Cassison and I sketched an initial theory of regimes of articulation. We argue that a historically specific configuration of the articulation of patriarchy, white supremacy, and the capitalist social order constituted such a regime. <clears throat> Some key elements of regimes that articulate shift between different eras regimes. I argue, in some, as I argue in some detail in the, in the next chapter of the book, sometimes there may be a shift in mechanism of oppression or, and, or institutional configuration, but outcomes remain substantially the same, if not identical. Marx noted, quote, some determinations belong to all epics, others to only a few. Some determinations will be shared by the most modern epic and the most ancient. No production will be thinkable without them. However, even though the most developed languages have laws and characteristics in common with the least developed. Nevertheless, just those things which determine their development, the elements which are not general and common, must be separated out from the determination valid for production as such so that their essential difference is not forgotten. Let me give a brief example for one era how we might use this approach to analyze um, a specific period. The first regime of articulation emerges with the beginning of the African slave trade by the Portuguese in the mid 15th century. The recent capitalism framework is in agreement with many others, although in opposition to Robinson and acknowledging that the emergence of modern system racial subordination emerged with the first large scale, scale sale of Africans by the Portuguese in 1444. Anna Moore in an important article demonstrated that this sale, including in the eyes of contemporary observers, was not only was not only marked by Africans as being subject to enslavement for economic gain, either due to the blessing of the crown or by the late 16th century, the needs of the market, but a horrendous exception to what heretofore had been considered natural law. The enslavement of Africans on an increasingly mass scale was an, quote, exception necessary for capital accumulation, unquote. Ultimately for, for the Portuguese and other European enslavers, quote, the market is assigned the role of arbiter. Eventually, quote, the market becomes a self-sufficient mechanism for justice, whitewashing practically any best basis for questioning the legitimacy of the slave trade, unquote. A consequence of this exception to national law that <coughs> accumulation both originary and ongoing is based not only on the marking of the racially subject, sub subordinate other, but by the massive violence you would be highly immoral if not done to Africans and later other non-European people. As a result, Africans become not only commodities, not only a source of labor power, they expropriate far more severely and cheaply than the exploitation of labor in such places as 19th century Manchester, but also a source within the US linked up to the period of just before the Civil War, the main source of capital itself. With enslaved persons as the main source of capital, the role of black women whose reproductive role is now both to expand both expropriated labor power and to expand capital itself is vastly different for both white working class women and the, and the white women who rule over blacks in the plantation, even as they themselves are subservient to their husband plantation owners. Thus, as I argue elsewhere in the book, a regime articulation approach helps us understand how within a specific temporal period, 
and geographic locality, gender, race, and class are fundamentally differentially shaped by a given regime of articulation. None of the above would be possible without the beginnings, the explicit and implicit actions in support of the racial state. With the emergence of modern processes of racialization and racial subordination, or more compactly with the emergence of global white supremacy, the racial state performs several functions. The racial state's portfolio includes the creation and enforcement of the boundaries that mark a racial hierarchy. This can be through the sanctioning and marking of the racial other as in the mid 15th century Portugal, the creation and maintenance of segregated neighborhoods in the US during the New Deal, or the creation of totalizing systems of state racism, such as Jim Crow in the US during the 19th and part of the 20th century or apartheid in South Africa. A closely related role is to initiate and enforce regulatory regimes that enable the expropriation of racially subordinate populations, whether in colonies or the metropole. Another task for the racial state is to enable the reproduction of racial hierarchies. As Pierce shows, this is a task that is often explicitly performed by educational institutions. Centrally, the racial state enables the accumulation of capital. As Lisa Lowe argued, quote, capitalist states and classes come to understand that the maximization of profits is more effectively secured, not by rendering labor abstract, but by willfully entangling the objective of profit maximization with the social production of difference, of restricted particularity and illegitimacy marked by race, nation, geographic origins, and gender, unquote. Similarly, David Theo Goldberg argues in his book, The Racial State, racial states must broadly be construed as modern states generally often serve capital's interests more or less self-consciously and certainly always have expressed as gendered interests. Thus, they have ensured economic well-being for some and social law and order diffusely. Capitalist states have drawn heavily on these racial possibilities, unquote. Finally, racial states provide both explicit and implicit legitimacy for, for racial violence. An example of legitimation, legitimation can be found in the sanctioning of the portion of crowns of enslavement of Africans in the mid 15th century. At, <coughs> During the Jim Crow era in the United States, there was not explicit state legislation or regulation for the practice of lynching, but the implicit legitimacy was conferred and was sundered whether it was local sheriffs refusing to prevent lynchings, local juries finding the murderers of black people innocent, or a president of the United States Woodrow Wilson showing the pro-lynching film, Birth of a Nation to members of Congress, his cabinet, and other high state officials. In summary, the race and capital framework enables us to understand how racial, gendered, and capitalist systems of domination interact with each other, and the consequence for those often oppressed by multiple systems of domination. Each hierarchy specifies who is privileged, who does not, what roles are assigned to different groups within the hierarchy, and the violent mechanism for enforcing the hierarchy. The racialized capitalism framework shares several of these attributes analytically does not center the interaction on multiple senses of domination interacting with each other, but centers instead how patriarchy and, and racial subordination work within a capitalist, single capitalist social order. Yet, a vicious thing might argue all three of these frameworks share a family resemblance. So let me briefly talk about what I haven't, what I won't be able to talk about in this talk, but that's in either this chapter or the next chapter. One is with respect to regimes of articulation is specifying the key elements 
of what constitutes a articulation of patriarchy, white supremacy and capitalism. Then going through in some detail what changes over time and what's stable over time with respect to each of these key elements. The, another part of the chapter, um, one which will undoubtedly cause some controversy is that I also engaged critics of the racial capitalism and racing capitalism approaches, particularly the Afro-pessimists who have a very different understanding of the relationship between political economy on one hand and racial subordination on the other, but also some black radical uh, egalitarian, to use their own phrase, uh, philosophers such as Tommy Shelby and Charles Mills. In conclusion, let's talk about what's at stake. It is far more, it's far more than an academic debate between abstract theorists. These debates speak directly to how we understand Trump's victory in the 2016 presidential election and the racist, racist authoritarian and potentially fascist, fascist phenomenon of Trumpism and the rise of neo-fascist movements in the global North and South. It speaks to how we best understand in countries in both the global North and South accelerating rates of inequality properly described by Thomas Piketty. What is at stake speaks to why we must criticize within black movements, those who take the extreme position that paying attention to racial disparities and police murders diverts us from building working class unity, that fighting racism is, is antagonistic to building class solidarity. The, this latter view has virtually no adherence among blacks in the US, but they give comfort and cover for a substantial setting of the US white left that continues that it has from the late 19th century to the present to ignore black struggles for justice and either dismiss or attack black activists. On the other hand, the Afro-pessimists, similar to some 20th century black nationalists have an equally ahistorical narrative that not only massively distorts the relationship between white supremacy and capitalism, <coughs> insisting despite all historical and contemporary empirical evidence that the core logics of slave-based anti-blackness exists outside of and ultimately invariant to the dynamics of the capitalist political economy. This strand of theorizing also has taken root in real-world activism. In, the, in, this, in our case, among young black actors struggling once again for black liberation during desperate times. And we can, you can see how the desperate times, in fact, has laid the groundwork for many of those who despair about the black condition in the US to become more attracted to Afro-pessimism. They are correct to insist that the logics of racial domination are autonomous and not fully determined by capitalist social orders. Those Marxists who have a totalizing view of capitalism and Afro-pessimism, pessimists both fail to understand the effects of the interaction of multiple systems of domination. It is our task to forge better theoretical weapons to not only illuminate the nature of oppressive systems of domination, but also so that we can help provide tools to combat them. Thank you.